Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. from Galway. Dave Joyce was the first Muay Thai instructor in Galway and was a pioneer of the martial arts in Ireland. He is a senior representative of the Irish Muay Thai Council. He is also the Irish representative for Syak Cali. Welcome to the show, Dave. How are you? I'm not bad, Simon. Thanks very much. At the moment, you're feeling a bit under the weather. You have some symptoms, no? Um, yeah, unfortunately tested positive for uh, COVID-19 last Wednesday and then got confirmed at the test on Wednesday, got confirmed on Thursday that it was positive. Then uh, unfortunately my fiance, same way she tested Thursday and confirmed she was positive as well on Friday. Do you think that it was something that you had been, you know, it, it got got to you early or like the, you had something you'd contracted from somebody in at work or you know or, or in in the gym or what where you have no idea i suppose no idea simon at all uh, it's very strange for us because uh i took my holidays from work very early this year because we had obviously uh, a lot of holidays to take because we'd worked through the whole first lockdown and uh, we needed to take our holidays and i wanted to get get finished early this year uh, I also closed the gym quite early, I think it was around the 16th, took my holidays on the 18th and we live in a very rural area, our closest neighbour is probably a quarter of a mile away on one side and half a mile on the other side, so we're in a very isolated area. Uh, Jerry works in the culinary business, anything from management level right down to, uh, you know, she'd work on a deli counter, but uh, she lost her job in March in the first pandemic, so because she wears double hearing aids, uh, she couldn't work under the circumstances at the moment because with everyone wearing a face mask, she can't lip read what they're, what they're trying to order or things like that. So not, not that there's an abundance of jobs out there. So she's basically self-isolated since, uh, since March. And since she had everything sorted and prepared for Christmas, so we didn't, we didn't go out for anything to eat. We don't really drink, so uh no issue with going out uh our circle was really small uh just my son my fiance and then my youngest son who's only five i have him uh, on a wednesday and i have him at the weekends and that was it so we would have went out we'll say coming up to christmas but very little and it was only for essential shopping and obviously when we went out we would have used a mask and we would use hand sanitizer and things like that so we're really perplexed as to how we actually contracted it. It, it. It's very, very strange. Our circle really small, doing all the things they advise people to do, and yet we still got it. It's very, very strange. And can I ask you, like, did you have any cases of COVID in the gym or when you were training the last few months? No, we we, we really curtailed what we did. Um, Jerry did a COVID course for the club. Um, there was a lot of people <laughs> saying that they were COVID compliant. And when you looked at the courses they did, they emanated from Australia and New Zealand and 50% of the stuff wasn't even relevant to Ireland. So it cost a bit of money. They were all free courses. It cost us a little bit of money. I think it was about 50 quid to do uh, this course, but it was all directly relevant to Ireland. The recommendations were all coming from the HSC and we implemented those straight away. 
Um, we had closed immediately. We actually closed the night uh, Leo Radcliffe made the announcement of the lockdown. So we just said there's no point in kind of delaying this or procrastinating. We just closed the gym straight away and we stayed close when we reopened jerry had the course done in the meantime and uh, we implemented all those measures we cut our numbers down um as restrictions got stricter here in ireland uh, where there was no contact training we had to kind of do um bag work basically smaller numbers much smaller class and people could just work on a bag rather than uh, pad work obviously so there was no close contact and things like that they had to sign in we had contact tracing a whole pile of paperwork um and thankfully we we uh, think maybe one person two person two people possibly may have had to go for a test but that was outside the club related one led from work and one led i think a child in the household to test it or had been a close contact to someone but both of those guys were negative they, they didn't um they didn't have covid I don't think I think one guy went for a test and the other guy didn't need to and uh, his test was negative Dave do you think like I I think I had sent you a message earlier and I said to you that I was shocked to see that Ireland was the highest per population with the with the virus at the moment and it's quite shocking I think it's like one percent uh, of the population is infected and um I mean that's really rapidly rising so wh what do you think has happened do you think that you know the the steps people were taking in the last few weeks weren't effective enough or do you think there was too many kind of private parties and this kind of thing being very honest simon i think an awful lot of people are to blame uh people's own personal behavior is dreadful uh because there's so many asym asymptomatic people they feel well i don't have it so i'm fine and i think it's a very selfish attitude to take because I think there's a huge number of people that are asymptomatic, but obviously they, they push the more vulnerable people at risk and they've been very selfish about it. Uh, I also mentioned to my colleagues in work, uh, because we worked through the last lockdown in Ireland, and when we came out in December, I said to the guys that I work with, I said there is going to be a ton of cases in January because you cannot expect people to come out of a six-week six lockdown, give them three weeks to a major holiday here, and expect the numbers not to increase i mean you give any big household three weeks to prepare for christmas you know they've they've present and not everybody's going to buy online some people just don't do that so no. you know they're going to have christmas shopping to do they're going to have a lot more uh, food shopping to do than they normally would so you know people's behavior may have been silly in the sense that they were queuing when they didn't need to but you know, I, I find it hard to blame them when it's, it's it's a very big celebration in Ireland. And then thirdly, I think the government were ridiculous. Um, they, they have they have played around with what Neffet has advised them at times and overdid it or underdid it and they just can't seem to get it right. Um, I think it's ridiculous to be honest, Simon. I, I feel very strongly about it that we should have been locked, locking down this island like New Zealand from the outset. Um, but there's evidence to show that even during the first lockdown, there was a large number of flights coming into Ireland and there was no testing. We actually came back from, I'm trying to think, it was late February, one of the lads fought at the last show that we attended was in Scotland and it was just starting to hit and the, the queues to get the plane back to Ireland that, that um, the end of February 
was like quite stark. It was like, whoa, what is going on here? This is kind of crazy. Masks weren't wow. in place or anything at the time, but you know things were starting to kind of really turn a corner that wasn't a good corner. And um, because those flights kept coming in, you know, it, it was madness. Uh, my fiance's family live in Mona and it's right on the border. And one thing, <laughs> what was ridiculous is we came into uh, we came out of lockdown just as they went into lockdown, and I think it might have been vice versa at one stage. Right. Well. So, you know, people, some people just have have no discipline at all, and if they're locked down, and the minute they get a chance, they just don't care. Right? Oh, if I can go across the border, I can go to a pub, and that means both directions. You know, from the yeah. south to the north, from the north to the south. Yeah. So you know, the fact that there was such intransigence against having a 32 county policy regardless of the political connotations we're talking about people's health here um that was a disaster yeah. from the get-go and i think it's still the case because um yeah I, you know we have to take an all-ireland approach to this and just shut it down for as long as it takes i personally think we came back because i came back to work in in um i think it was the beginning of june we had been in a couple of times for emergency calls we were basically we weren't furloughed, we were kind of working from home on standby, so if an emergency came up or something needed to be done, we were called in. But again, this shows up. I live in an area with extremely bad uh, mobile phone reception. We don't have a house phone, we only have mobile phones, the reception is terrible. So a lot of the time when they were trying to contact me, I couldn't be contacted because the calls weren't coming through. And I wouldn't even get a missed call alert sometimes until a day or a day and a half later which isn't much good when you're called into work so you no. know it, it, it this whole pandemic has highlighted a lot of crazy things that, that are let go yeah i mean this is the thing that uh, my kind of uh words that i like to use this pandemic COVID is kind of like this silent assassin because people as you said think oh i'm fit and strong and i'm healthy and i don't take chances and i'll nip across the border and i'll have a few drinks and i'll do my shopping and it won't affect me if i if i stay safe but that's the thing if you do get any kind of symptoms the first thing people are doing is thinking where who was i in contact with where did this come from and it's nearly impossible to trace it back and this is the problem that it just it's there we can see it but it's doing so much damage and it's just crazy and i think people like i mean here in madrid you know we had it was very bad for a few months it's a bit better now and they've managed to curtail the number of people dying which is good and they've kind of have a i suppose when something gets really bad the experts become more of an expert um but I think now the situation we had in Madrid a few months ago is starting to rear its head in our in Ireland. And, you know, um, and this is the bad thing. I mean, you're really going to see the effects of it now in January and February with the cold winter, no? Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. Um, like people's complacency from the start was very poor. Uh, I'm sure you remember Des Hubbard from Red Light Records in, in Eggleton Street and Des lives in, in um, Lombardy. And uh, the funny thing is, apart from me being in Scotland at the end of February, we were in um, we were in Lavinio in Lombardy skiing in uh, the end of January, beginning of February. And, you know, things were great there. It was my first time skiing. Jerry, Jerry loves it, but it was my first time skiing. And uh, it was great there. But within three weeks, they were devastated. And I remember days being on, uh, 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 online and, and saying to people, like, you don't realize what it's like here. It's crazy. And 
people's complacency here was unbelievable. You know, people denying it, ah, it's not that bad. And he was giving us first-hand examples of how bad it was and how how difficult it was. I mean, their, their frontline staff, I'd say those people could be traumatized for years to come with what they faced. It was it was horrible there, and that was obviously one of the worst places in Europe when the whole thing started. Dave, let's go back a little bit. Let Let's go back to your your early life. So you you were I'm right. You were born in Galway. You're Merview, aren't you? That's where you were originally came from. Tell us about growing up there and everything. People laugh because there's a saying which. People from the centre of Galway, it, that you're not a, a real Galwegian unless you're born within the walls of Galway or grew up with the walls, walls of Galway. And my very, very, I have very vague memories of growing up um, in in Flood Street uh, for the first few years of our life. Mum and Dad lived in an apartment there on the top floor. It was Sisk's offices at one stage and it's part of um, the Harbour, not the Harbour Hotel, I can't remember, I think possibly the Harbour Hotel, but we used to live on the top floor there, uh, straight across from the Custom House, so we spent the first few years growing up there in the city okay. centre, and then we moved out to Glenina Heights, just next door to Galwegian's Ruby Ground, and it's it's what, maybe two and a half, three miles maximum from Galway City Centre, and people are going, why are you moving out to the country? My God, you'll never survive out there. <laughs> <laughs> And I can actually remember the yeah, like you're in the sticks and you're yeah, totally. And I can remember at the time. I think there may have been about uh, there was very few. There may have been only about there's fifty four houses in Glenina Heights. I think there was about half a dozen from my memory uh, when we moved out there. So it was we were one of the first families to move in there. Wow. Yeah, because I imagine like Glenina Heights and all around that area was there was a lot of new developments, but it was still pretty empty. You're, you're touching the countryside there, weren't you? We'd say the existing houses of Carlin Cushing Road and Quinn Place and Lachlan Terrace, all those would have been there. And just the very front there towards the Dublin Road, uh, Glenina was just starting to become a development there. And uh, but obviously it only fitted. It only ended up fitting 54 houses, but uh, I can just remember vague memories of that. What year did they build the, the flats in Merview? Was that, do you remember that when you were growing up there? I can remember, um, I can remember the Walter Mackin flats. I can't actually think of when they were built, to be honest, Simon. Uh, I do remember the play, there was a playground uh, there. There's a, there's a crash at there at the moment on that spot. And I remember we used to be there on the way, we used to play there on the way to school and things. So those flats were up. And my grandmother actually lived in it at one stage, in in, the, in a flat at one stage, but she oh, went wow, back yes. to home work because she was a townie at heart and she just loved her own house. So she ended up moving back home. She's a very independent <laughs> woman anyway. I love it. So. I, lo I love it. I love it. Like if you're in Merview, you're not a townie, but if you're in Bohemore, you are. And now, now, I mean, it's about 10 or 15 minutes walk and you're there. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. When you were, how many was in your family? Was it just you or was there more kids? Um, there was, there was six of us, in, there's six of us in total, uh, four boys and two girls. Um, so I'm the eldest deck is underneath me. <laughs> Darina was in the middle of four boys so she grew up tough and then there's uh, 20 years between me and my younger sister mia who's the baby of the family wow that's a big gap no and i've probably done something similar myself my, my eldest is 27 and my youngest is five <laughs> wow wow 
yeah, that's a that's a but that's the way the world is now because there's all types of new relationships and people are having children later as well sometimes. So sometimes you'll have these huge gaps and you know it's a, it's an interesting thing. But when you have a 27 year old and a five year old who are you know brothers or half brothers or step brothers or whatever, but it's a it's a funny dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 a 24 year old in the middle, so. The two older lads have a great <laughs> relationship with Daniel, so it's really funny to watch. Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen some of your photos on Facebook there with with them, and it's gas, you know. And um, can I ask you then, like when you were growing up, um, what kind of stuff did you do besides obviously you got into martial arts and everything? But did you try a lot of sports and try other hobbies as well? Oh yeah, our family was sports mad, absolutely mad. All of us were. When I consider what my mum uh, went through when we were growing up, she was unbelievable. Um, we were constantly playing every, like De my brother Declan, we reckon played on at least 10 teams when he was about 16 years of age. So he, he played a lot of soccer, he played a lot of rugby, played a lot of Gaelic. He will say he hurled, no, that's, that's open to interpretation. He wouldn't have been a great hurler. But people say, well, that's maximum eight teams. Yeah, but he was 16 and he was huge. Uh, we have a po photograph from, uh, I think it's 1974, uh, a black and white photo. We were under 11 with Bohemians. And I'm sitting in the front, this small little guy sitting on the bench. And I'm the eldest in the family. And Deck is sitting there and he's like here. And he's head and shoulders over me both in height and, and in stature so he was big and obviously he was playing uh minor and at one stage uh Murphy junior seaside came down he would have been just 16 uh maybe going on 17 and uh Murphy junior seaside came down and asked him to play junior c as well as minor so he, we, we reckon it's a minimum of 10 teams but you know, I look at kids now when I teach and, and the downside to all that, it's great to be involved in so many teams. And when I say eight, I can, I can qualify that. He played uh, rugby, soccer, Gaelic and hurled a little bit with the Bish. He played soccer with Bulls, rugby with Corinthians and a lot of football with Merview and a little bit of hurling. So, you know, he, he had the record there. But by the time he was 23, his knees were shot. He, um, to this day, he's huge wow. issues with his knees over it. And, you know, I love seeing kids involved in sport. I don't care what they're playing. As I often say, you know, as long as they're involved in sport, it's fantastic. But, you know, I, I've coached a little bit of rugby in Calisanctus and Norton Moore because my two lads went there. And, you know, the really talented kids, they're in such demand. You know, the soccer team wants them, the rugby team wants them. They may hurl a little, they may play football. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. I mean, it's great, but I mean, coaches need to be responsible too. You know, they need to realize the demands that are on kids physically, you know, and the downside of that is I, I'm looking at kids that I seen went to school with my kids and they have the same kind of issues that Deck had, just playing too many of the same type of sports and, you know, maybe growing too big too quickly. And, you know, they're just shot by the time yeah. they're, they're young guys in their 20s. Yeah, and you know, there's probably a little bit of selfishness on the on the part of some coaches because they kind of want the student or you know the the pupil to be the best at what they're doing, but they're not thinking that maybe he's doing five other activities, whether it be basketball or you know taekwondo or whatever. And the thing is, 
like especially if you're playing football and you're doing martial arts for example there's a lot of pressure on your legs and your knees and your ankles so you you'll always even i I know my wife used to play like semi-professional basketball she's from poland and she used to have lots of injuries on her ankles when she was younger and everything so you have to grow old with those injuries and the more sports you do the more chance of having more of those injuries no give you an idea how 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 hard it was uh when i coached with with with, uh Rob Crane and and Dan Maher in in Calisanctus. We had a very very good side with some brilliant young players. Uh, we realised that because we were competing with with, with, with hurling and, and soccer as well, it was going to be very hard to get the whole squad together. Now that squad get got to a, a, a junior cup uh, final uh, against Sligo Grammar, but. We decided we'd train Monday, Wednesday and Friday. It wasn't that we wanted the kids necessarily doing three days a week, but we knew we couldn't get everyone at the same time. But I don't think we had the full squad at any stage, even alone. For We said to kids, look, as long as you can make two of the three, that's great. If you're playing other sports, one of the three is fine. But we need you on certain days because obviously if you're missing a prop, the scrum is is not going to perform to the ability it, 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 it can if you're missing your out half there's no one to call plays and um, you know other positions maybe not as bad but i don't think in all the training sessions we had we had our full uh starting 15 at any stage because um there were there were ties to other sports as well um and we, we we lost that final and i think a lot of that was just because uh we, we never had a full session where we could have everyone working as a unit so you know but it puts a lot of demands on kids and, yeah. and you know as you said coaches need to kind of unfortunately they're human they're going to be selfish but it's the kids that are going to suffer really not them you know may, maybe as we get into a kind of a, a better world in the future maybe coaches will look and say listen you know johnny or whoever what other stuff are you doing now and you know you bear this in mind when you're training and you know, maybe change your training to different nights. But unfortunately, people kind of think of their own entities and what they're doing and they try to say, oh, well, look, you've trained on Tuesday and Thursday and try and be there if you can. And, you know, kids, I'm sure, are saying to coaches, oh, I've hurling that night and I've rugby on Friday. And, you know, and of course, the coach is thinking on their behalf. Well, as long as you're ready for the grading or as long as you're ready for the competition, that's you know, just look after yourself. And that's the shame of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I have to hold my, my own hand up as well. I mean, the parents have a lot to, to, to answer for with this as well. I mean, I look, I was small in stature always, and I played rugby from six or seven years of age. My dad set up the juvenile section in Corinthians, and obviously we, we just loved it. And up to uh, until I was about 14 or 15, I loved rugby. I mean, it was probably more than soccer I think I preferred rugby I love soccer as well but um because I was small and once junior there was back in those days there was no real junior cup as such not like it is nowadays so when we went into um the senior squad you know with sink or swim time and because we were small it was like okay you guys stand over there and we'll get these guys here and we we're basically just cannon fodder for the big lads and I, I regret to this yeah. day that I, I gave up and I just didn't try harder, but um, you were so small, you weren't going to make an impact. And I gave up rugby at that stage. So then in later years, when my lads started playing rugby, 
obviously I was selfish as hell. I was living my my rugby career through my lads, you know, and I, I was pushing them as much. <laughs> Absolutely. So you know, I can understand it from both perspectives. Being being selfish and wanting to see your kids do good because maybe you didn't take the opportunities that were yeah. there to you, but. You know, it is human nature. We 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 just need to let them live their lives. Yeah, you were saying that time because I remember I used to play rugby with Corinthians for a while. I think about a year, maybe seven or eight months. I can't remember, but that time we used to train in the. Um, Oh, years ago now, we used to train in the, there was like an old hotel across from the sports ground there. Do you know what? That's where they used to have their their changing rooms there. Arden and Craig, yeah, and I always remember that because. It'd be, I don't know now where you training there at that time. I can't remember. I remember a few of the lads, but we used to go up with Jimmy Glynn, you know, Jimmy Glynn from Currafin. Did you know Jimmy? He died not so long ago. He, yeah, and uh, I trained with Eugene Hessian there. Yeah, I trained with Eugene Hessian in Currafin there. That's Eugene got me into it because he was playing with Corinthians for a bit. But I remember, yeah, going up to that cold dressing room underneath the hotel and and the thing was they used the bar and the hotel as well as the social kind of place and going to out the god end arse end of nowhere playing teams from malahide and everything in the freezing weather <laughs> yeah we, we were really lucky uh, uh I, and there's not many people that remember erna craig uh there's i think it's it's apartments across from the city council is there now but the the abide yeah the abiding memory I have is obviously, we, as you said, Simon, we, we, we'd get togged out in Erna Craig in the dressing rooms there, and then you jogged down to the uh, sports ground, and the sound of all the, the studs jogging down is the, cl- the clip clapping. Yeah. Yeah, it's like an army. I, I remember that. Yeah, the, the clip clapping down the road, you know what I mean? And there could be ice on the road or everything, and fellas falling and everything. <laughs> And, and and Tom Holland's sheep all over the side pitch, so you were guaranteed to come out green, and it wasn't green from the grass. <laughs> yeah, that's gas, isn't it? That's gas. That's a, That's for me an old Galway memory. I always remember, even now, if I walk by those apartments, I always look in, and I think you used to go in the gate down the hill, and I always remember that. It always sticks out in my mind. You know, it's it's a, an old part of Galway. So so listen, Dave. Um, tell us so when did you start martial arts and like how did you get into it what was your kind of motivation um well i suppose like like a lot of guys in my generation it was definitely bruce lee um there was a karate club mm. in Murphy community center which was probably Murphy community center probably about four or five hundred yards from my house and uh i remember going up to see it after having seen bruce lee and i kind of just i i just liked the fluidity of of what we've seen in the movies, which, you know, 50% of that might have been real. Mm. When I looked at karate, I just thought, no, that's not the same thing. And just never got the bug from that. And it was a couple of years later when um, a Kung Fu system came to Galway first, and I went down to see, and once I'd seen, that looks more like what Bruce Lee did. (laughs) And that was me hooked straight away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they came down, did a demonstration, there was no opportunity to train. They just came down, did a short demonstration for about 20 minutes or so, and then looked for people to sign up. And it was in a, 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 another old building that's subsequently gone. It's the Revive Cafe now. It was O'Neill's Hotel at the time. I think it was uh, 
an insurance business at one stage just across from Roach's stores. And even Roach's is gone. It's Debenhams now, but uh, they started up yes. there and yeah. then moved down to St. Patrick's Hall. But the minute I seen the demo, that was it. And it was it was quite expensive to train at the time. This is 1981. I think it was about £20 a month to train. And, of course, I went back to mum and dad and said, listen, I want to do this. And they were going, how much? And they were going, kind of go, oh. But they did. They gave me the money yeah. and I started the very first night and been in it from the scratch ever since that very first night. The end of January 1981, never forget it. I was still in school and all. <laughs> wow. So, like, literally, it's 40 years ago this month, no? Yeah, 40 years ago this month. I was going to say, it's funny how you say the whole Bruce Lee thing. I mean... The, Bruce Lee is always such an iconic character and I remember you know um, my brother Charlie you know Charlie as well and, and Charlie was doing a bit of Taekwondo and, and I always wanted to do it but we moved uh, we moved we were at that time we were living in Kildare and he had done it for a few months but I remember I had you know the old the, the old uh, window fan over the door you know like the glass over the door and always my objective was trying to kick the top of the door and falling on your arse and everything but getting more flexible all the time but uh, and watching the Bruce Lee movies and having the Bruce Lee I used to go into Chivago's and buy the Bruce Lee posters and put them on the wall and you know he, he was so iconic I mean even if you didn't watch all of his stuff, all you had to do was watch one or two movies and you were kind of hooked on the whole idea of it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and tell me, Dave, so so you got into Kung Fu. Was that, was that a particular style of Kung Fu that you were learning at the time? Like, or were they mixing different styles of Kung Fu? Um, they started with just completely Kung Fu. Um, in subsequent years, we found out that what we were actually learning in Ireland uh, was really watered down. Uh, the guy was an innovator. His name was Daniel K. Pai. Um, he had trained mm. under Ed Parker, the, the famous Kempo guy. He, he'd crossed Patrick The Kempo guy, things. yeah. And uh, so he taught kind of, um, it was very strange. It, it, it was an eclectic mix of kind of like some, some Japanese karate uh, some uh, Kempo Karate and then some Kung Fu as well. Um, I really look and I'm dubious now when I look back and, and see real Kung Fu systems which we subsequently trained in and know that it was, it, it was, it was really not really good. I, I think it was really watered down. Mm. Um, I don't think it was authentic at all. And certainly the, the variation that we got in Ireland was very different to what they were training in the States. Yeah, I, I think that's it, though, because, you know, for me, obviously, I remember when I started training in, in karate and Chum, and I remember the first time I went in with one of the lads from my school and, you know, he uh, he gave up within a week and then I kind of stopped doing it. And then I came back a few months later, but I went to another karate club that was in Chum and I stayed there then and I went on and trained with him for a good few years. And the thing is, for me, though, you know, the, as you said, the the I was doing Shotokan karate, and and it's a very rigid style, and you know, low stances and everything, and you kind of that's the thing as a martial artist when you're doing martial arts, you do question what you're being taught. I mean, I had a fabulous instructor, Celia Kelly, and she was amazing, but it's not so much the instructor. Sometimes it's the association and the the system and the style. 
And for me, the big kind of gripe I have against a lot of karate now is that it's sport karate. Because I remember learning from from these martial arts books and I had this fantastic book. I still have it, actually. And it's like it was like a mixture of jujitsu and karate. And it was very I love the movements. And it was only, you know, a book is only pictures. But for me, I found that the sport karate kind of it used to annoy me because I'd be thinking, yeah, but I, I want to learn in this situation. What do you do and what's in that situation? I wanted to learn more the traditional defense and what they used, you know, whereas a lot of the time you're going for points and you're, you know, scoring and then catas and everything. So, I mean, I think a lot of people lose favor with some martial arts over this watering down, don't they? Yeah, oh, totally. Um, I think it's it's a huge thing and it's funny in a lot of ways because on, on one extreme you have the guys like you're saying that are, are, are pushing sport karate and on the other extreme then you have MMA guys who are going, you know, that's all traditional rubbish and it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with the real world. And, you know, there's there's mm-hmm. merit in both, but you know, it depends what you're looking for. To me, a sport is still a sport. And this is my big issue I have with, with a lot of MMA coaches that, you know, they want it to be all things to mm. all people. Absolutely it's a phenomenal combat sport. But um, you know, the, the the famed street is a different place, and the way I try to put it to people is, mm. is is it's not comparing things, but it's just there's no rule set on the street, and and you know if you if you put it in a fighting context, you don't have to worry about the corner man picking up the stool and hitting his his, his opponent's corner with the stool. No, that's the difference with the street. So. Um, you know, I think both sides there are, are not being genuine in, in, in what they're saying to people. But, you know, um, martial arts is there to enjoy. To me, I've always looked at martial arts as, as like going into a Chinese restaurant and, and looking at the array of dishes that's there. And there is no way in the world you can convince me that chop suey is better than curry if curry is my dish. And that's not to stop us trying lots of other yes. dishes as well, you know. Some complement each other, yes. some don't. Yes. Yeah. You know, you might try two different dishes that don't complement each other and you don't feel good after doing the same thing with martial arts. Some martial arts work great together. One will help the other and others are just, um, they, they, it's not that you can't do them, but you're not adding anything to your skill set because the, the principles may be contrary to each other. Yeah, well, I, I remember because I trained with you for a while and then I moved out of Galway and I, I, I didn't continue. But I remember I always enjoyed when I was training with you was you had a very open mind towards other martial arts. And, you know, you you were teaching a few different styles there. And I for me, I thought that was great because, you know, of course, in later years, the MMA came around and a lot of MMA practitioners had a foundation in either karate, kung fu, you know, different styles, jujitsu. But you, the, the, to have that foundation is a great thing because it, you know, build. You can build upon something, and then you can mix them and match them and do whatever. And you know what I always liked about your club there and your teaching was you, it was open doors kind of to that. And I remember, you know, coming from Tume, uh, there was me and I, I think it was one or two other lads, and we went training in your club. And another older karate guy said to us, you're going up to the Kung Fu club training, and but you're doing karate. And I was like, yeah, but we want to go up and, you know, we want to test out things and see things. And because 
that's the thing. You have to have an open mind and like say, oh, what's that? Krav Maga, oh, Jiu Jitsu, BJJ. You know, you, it's nice to try these. And I know myself, for me, after I, um, I, I got my black belt and when I got it, I felt I always felt like it'd be a greater achievement. But as a lot of people find out, you're just really starting on the road to somewhere. And that I think it was that year or whatever. I had an encounter in Galway City where I was attacked, me and my girlfriend at the time, by three guys coked up with knives. And I remember in, in that heat at the moment, the karate helped me, but it also showed me that there's so much more I had to learn and that these things, these systems aren't always valuable on the streets. And, you know, and I had worked on doors and I had, I, you know, I could handle myself. But the thing is, when you're in a situation when people have knives and you've nothing and you're even if you did, you're not a trained knife fighter and people are on hard drugs or something that changes their mentality. You you know, you fear for your life and these moves you've learned, you can freeze and you don't put everything in, into practice, you know, you don't put all the stuff you've learned into practice. So that kind of opened my mind to the, the whole idea of, you know, you, you have to mix and match, you have to use what's effective, but it's all about the mentality too, isn't it? The mindset is, is critical to, to, to any martial art at all. Whether you're talking about combat sports, if your mindset isn't right, it doesn't matter how good your training is physically, how good your preparation is, how good your conditioning is. If your mindset isn't right, you're not going to win. On the other side of the coin, your mindset for the street just has to be exactly right. You have to understand the situation well. You have to be able to read what's going on. And if you don't have that, you know, things aren't good. And... You know, the chances of us coming across a life or death situation are very, very slim. That doesn't mean it won't happen. I can remember, like you said, Simon, people kind of say, oh, you know, why were you guys doing things like that? Ireland was never that dangerous back in those days. But I remember a mm. guy prob probably in the 80s and he went on holidays and he was mugged and he was stabbed and he was hurt quite bad in the stabbing. And we, we spoke to him when he came back. Now, this is way before I did any weapons training. And he said, uh, mm -hmm. and it brings up what you said earlier, he had this guy try to mug him and he only had a certain amount of money and he was on holidays. If that money was taken, he didn't know how he was even going to get home. So obviously he tried to stand up for himself and yeah. fight back. But when the guy produced the knife, he tried to kick it out of his hand and got stabbed in the leg. So, you know, <gasps> his mindset for that situation was just, you know, he had the willingness, but... Um, he didn't know how, how how to deal with that situation and that that's that's what people need to understand mindset is, is vital yeah yeah uh, it, uh, like when you have the correct mindset it's not just about your fighting ability it's your decision making as well you know there's going to be times when oh this is not a good time to fight you know you may have companions with mm. you you may have kids with you and you know that may not be the right time to make a stand you may have to hand over everything you have but do you put the monetary value on what you're handing over above your family? Um, and likewise, there's other times that, you know, you can hand over everything you have and these guys aren't satisfied and they want more. What are you going to do? You know, are you going to protect your family? So it's about understanding things and having the correct mindset is, is vitally important. Yeah, I, I remember that situation because I think I was around 30 at the time and we were just coming home from a party and it was uh, like, you know, three in the morning or whatever. And coming down Bohemore there, you know, and, um, you know, quiet streets and, and 
it was basically one of those situations. I stopped in at the side. Uh, you know that, uh, is it Blake's Lane or you know that one there, the, the small little laneway? I think it's in Bohermore. And uh, I stopped in there to have a piss, you know, and uh, and my girlfriend was standing out at the end of it just there. She was only like 20 meters away from me with her bag. And as these fellas went by, they grabbed the bag. And of course, my first reaction was, you know, zipped up, ran after them. And when I got up to them, I said, give me the bag. And the guy was like, well, how, what, this is our bag. And I was like, you know, so I grabbed the bag off him. And as I start, I turned to walk away, which and next minute, one of them called me. He said, hey, you fucker, come here, you know. And next minute I turned around and he had a knife out. And, and the other two guys pulled knives. And I thought, fuck, you know, I don't know. I don't, to be honest, I don't know how I would have dealt with one knife, but to have the three of them with knives. And I knew straight away they were coked to their eyes, you know, and, um, my first thing was, I have to get out of here. But at that stage, I was a little away from her. So I actually did the smartest thing I think I've ever done. I crossed the road with them kind of moving towards me. But I was getting them away from her. And as like you said, you're trying to kind of think of the situation on your feet and where to go, what to do. And I led them towards, uh, what do you call the bar in, in Bormore? Um What's the bar there? The is it, uh, Crows, crows, yeah, one of these, and went, went towards the bar, and as I was there, I thought, okay, I have a hope here, and, and you know, your, your adrenaline's in, you know, and the fear and everything, and I literally, I turned, and as I turned, one was white me, and I did the only martial art move, um, the only thing I did was I did a back kick, and I kicked the guy in the chest, and I knocked him, and as they kind of went to help him, I ran. And I thought, I have to get them away from her. So I, I ran, I jumped down the back wall and I didn't realize there was like a 20 foot drop. I ran down, came up around the estates and managed to get to her. But it seemed like, um, it seemed to me like, you know, 20 minutes, but it was probably only two minutes to get around to her. But you know, it's like your life flashes before your eyes. But I always remember we, I managed to get to her and I could hear them shouting up the road at us and everything. We got out of there and we just got out went back towards the city and looked for a cop and you know of course it's like when you're looking for the law they're never around and uh i we were very lucky though i mean it could have ended far worse and the thing was it was only like someone's bag she, they took a bag and and you know you could have been brave and said okay here's my best bruce lee moves and i'm going to put everything into practice but you end up you know with 16 stab wounds in you and this is the problem and i'm so thankful that we got away but like you said, the best situation is to get out of there and to get the person you're with out of there safely and to try and defuse the situation. But it's not a case of talking sometimes because these people won't listen if they have a if they have a mindset of doing harm, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and people don't understand that there's just bad people out there. Chances are in the custom might be small, but, you know, there are people that don't have a sense of right or wrong and they don't care. And I think that's the biggest thing that people don't take into account. There's just some people out there that are evil and, uh, and want to do bad things. You know, for people, I suppose for anybody, um, when they're when they're doing, um, when they have a situation and they have tr some sort of training, I think the way to look at it is that if the training helped you a little bit and got you off that situation, you don't need to be victorious. You just need to be alive. No, absolutely not. I remember um, I was very young at the time. Uh, I was teaching, but I, I was probably only in my mid-twenties, and I was asked to teach self-defense to um, 
a, a, a women's group in Murphy, and those ladies were amazing for that time. I suppose I was a bit of a, a, a strange case for them as well because I had a very forthright views and things like that, and I've always would regard myself as being very open. And so they were kind of quite surprised that this young guy could have kind of an open mind on, on certain subjects and uh, I remember saying to them look I says, if you never get out of this I says, at least have um, a good understanding of what you're trying to achieve if you never want to do martial arts that's fine I said but know how to get yourself out of trouble and I remember one of the ladies on that in the subsequent years she took what I said to heart and she started running she learned to run because you know it's 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 laughable in a lot of ways. The big martial arts advice is if someone produces a knife or if they're superior rods, run. Don't get into the competition. Run. Yeah, but unless you run for a living, or, or unless you run as a pastime, most people aren't going to run very far. And if you run away from trouble, sometimes the trouble will catch up with you. So, but so this is what I explained to them. Yeah. I said, look, if you never follow on from this, you know, but you you know, if conflict isn't your thing, but you think running is, well, then you know learn to run and i used to see her running out on the roads regular you know and she, she took that lesson to heart so you know it, it it was about decision making and the decision she made was was very very good nothing to do with conflict or martial arts but learned that if i have to run i'm going to be able to run they're going to have a job to keep up with me yeah and and you know that's the thing isn't it because i think as you know martial artists and anybody kind of who works in like i know you've worked in the door a long time as well and i did door work for a couple of years and the thing about that that it taught me was it's not about what you know it's about how you read the situation and how you can diffuse a situation and the thing about it is i think the clever people in a situation where they're in danger it's how quickly their mind works and, you know, for, for these guys who train in the military for these kind of situations and, you know, where their lives are at risk, it's how quickly they can evaluate and use minimal force, but still get the job done or, or get the hell out of there, isn't it? People, it's funny, you know, this controversy about the, the guy in Dublin that was shot. I mean, the whole operation was handled very badly from the start, but in the context of regardless of how it was how the situation was handled but you're asking a guy to make a decision there in a split second if he's oh why didn't they just swing him shoot him in the arm or shoot him in the leg you know apart from the fact they obviously know very little about firearms when they make suggestions like that you're asking people to make a split second decision and uh it just shows you how little people think about these things that they think it's just oil that guy could possibly stab my colleague, so I, I just need to shoot him in the arm, you know. It, it shows you people aren't living in the real world a lot of the time. Yeah, because, you know, it's crazy. I've never really trained in firearms or anything, but I remember reading one thing once. I used to always be thinking, why do the American cops always have to shoot the guys in the chest or the back or wherever, you know? Why can't they give them two leg shots or whatever to deflect them? But... The thing about it is, what I realized was but to reading that a lot of the center mass, like where they have to shoot, is the, the the easiest place to hit because a lot of the time shooting at the leg and the arms, they miss. And in that second that they miss, someone could be dead. You know, just because someone's shot and may ultimately die, it doesn't mean they haven't the capacity to still injure others or kill others before they, they, they die. So that's why, you know, winging someone or shooting them in the arm. The other factor as well, I laugh when I tend to see this because I've had a, a lot of 
good fortune to train with very experienced um, military guys and, and, and law enforcement guys. But when you try to shoot someone in the arm or the leg, there's a good chance that they'll miss the target completely. And that ricochet or that shot that misses could end up having devastating impact uh, on somebody else. Yeah. Or, you know, so uh, people don't understand, uh, like, as you said, center mass is, is they, they give people the opportunity to, to, you know, not escalate things. And uh, when they do, they have to make that decision there and then straight away. It's not something that can be evaluated or, or thought about. It's just it's a split second decision that has to be made. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. The, so for you guys now, I mean, obviously with with the Cali and, and you 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 do the do you still do the Penchak Salat? Do you do that as well, or or what style do you mainly train in now? Um, well, I suppose that's when you mentioned that earlier about training. So I suppose that's what my my life's journey has been. Is is you know I've always suppose I've been searching for something. Like I found I seen karate go. No, that's not what I want. Seen come for. Wow, this is it. This is what I want to do. Starts training and that, and uh, then after a few years we we started doing some Thai boxing with Master Toddy. And I was going, man, this is pretty cool. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Master Toddy. Is, is Master Toddy still alive? Very much so, yeah. Um, I, ha I haven't kept up to date with what he does now, but the amazing thing about that guy is the vast majority of Muay Thai instructors in Europe, not just in Britain and Ireland, have probably some lineage going back to him in some way or another. I mean, his influence was crazy for, for a guy that was just running a club in Manchester his 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 roots spread throughout Europe and and there's people in France and Holland that have ties to him. Uh, I remember a Bulgarian guy. He he's probably my age now, and I was in my early twenties. And uh, he was training away in the club, small stocky guy. And you know, I presume he may have went back pulled back to Bulgaria at some stage. So you know, his his influence was huge. It was all over Europe, but um. I, that Spartan was completely different to the kind of old point stuff we referred to earlier. And I was going, wow, I really want to try this. So mm. then I started kind of tie boxing and, and I loved that and still do. Um, not long after that, then I, 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 I did a seminar in Filipino martial arts and I was kind of, whoa, hold on a minute. This is different. This is weapons. This is cool. So I wanted to experiment with that. And that was around 87. And that's see that was one of the ways that I kind of I moved to London basically in 89 and uh, I wanted to fill up my time obviously needed to work to, to, to survive over there but uh, the eco economy here was really bad at the time so it was an opportunity to just uh, try something different for a year and I said set myself about a year approximately uh, ended up being about eight months not a year but uh, I said right while I'm there I'm going to train as much as I can and I was training Thai boxing. It's not that I couldn't have learnt more Thai, but I wanted to experiment with other stuff. So I had trained with Nino Bernardo, who was a, a famous Wing Chun practitioner. Um, and even his his background was amazing. His instructor was Wang Chung Lung, who was uh, Bruce Lee's instructor. Most people think Yip Man taught Bruce Lee, but Yip Man did teach yeah. Bruce Lee, but uh, his, his senior, Bruce's senior was Wang Chung Lung, and he was Nino's. Um, instructor yeah. but what was unique is uh, Nino was training under uh, Dan and Asento at the time and it was the Filipino arts that I wanted and I loved that but that was uh, I think it was yeah. one night a week of that and I wasn't too pushed on doing Wing Chun but I said no I'll do it because it suits me 
and there was uh, my, my choices then were, were Bob Breen's Academy which was going through a big tie boxing phase I had just fought tie and things like that so I was going oh, I'm looking for something else and that's where uh, I met Richard DeBoards and wanted to do Sea uh, Lash so again being exposed to all this stuff ga gave me kind of wow this is amazing there's a whole world here later on then um, I, I didn't have an instructor and I, I didn't know where I was going so uh, we used to go to Dan Nacento seminars and it, I mean I liked JKD but there was a lot of it that I didn't want to do it was the weapons that had me intrigued at this stage so uh, that, that's a, 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 a question I have for you because obviously you know you've seen Dan Nacento in the movie you know working alongside Bruce Lee and learning from Bruce Lee but I always kind of felt that even though he kept the legacy of JKD KD alive, you know, and he kept Bruce Lee's kind of words coming out, it, it was a different style. It, it was Jeet Kune Do, but it was kind of to Dan Inosanto's methods. I mean, so it probably was a bit different to what people perceived it to be, no? Well, there's three different types of JKD. Um, uh, I can't remember the, all the names. There's original JKD, which would have been like there's three phases of Bruce and um, they're the three phases but uh, Dan Nacento's with Jeet Kune Do Concepts that's the one that he was uh, renowned for and, and, and he was left that legacy by Bruce certainly the others are relevant but it's it, it's on a progression I mean I, I don't get hung up about it but um, what appealed to me was was, was the JKD Concepts because um, they were they had an open mind they took on board anything and they followed a lot of Bruce's influences in, in, in what what he did, you know, like Muay Thai and diverse uh, Silas and uh, now currently like with, with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and things like that. I mean, I was speaking to someone recently and Dan Santos in his 80s now, he teaches all over the world. Um, it was an interview actually that was on Facebook and uh, although he's in his 80s and he's a full schedule of teaching all over the world, he still goes into classes himself and, and studies in a class in jiu-jitsu and things like that so you know it's yeah. he, he's a phenomenal man in in that respect you know that's an interesting thing because recently i was looking at you know you you, you kind of think to all these masters and you know yogis and all these kind of people involved in spiritual and martial arts and you kind of think oh wow is that guy still alive that's why i was curious because i remember I remember buying the martial arts magazines and you'd always see Master Toddy in them and everything. And I remember then when I trained with you, you'd be talking about Master Toddy. And so I was thinking well, he must be pretty old because when we were doing the, the Shotokan, we used to have Hirokazu Kanazawa, who was kind of legendary in Japan for his karate, you know. And now I was looking there recently and I think he died recently, but he was, you know, he was pretty old. I think so. I'm not sure. I have to check. But then I was looking at... Um, the other what's his name oh i was trying to think there the yeah i i remember yeah i trained for a while with josie murray up in uh donegal and i attended a few seminars with carly gracie and so there's a lot of these like old martial art masters some of them are still around but now they're very old but they're probably trying to train as effectively as they can now the Dennis Santoff tells the story of a guy called John Acosta, who was a famous Filipino martial artist, and he was very, very elderly in the in the final years. 
well, I'll never forget what Dan in the centre said, like he'd come out and he'd, he'd go to move. But the minute he picked up the stick and started moving, this fluid guy just suddenly came alive. And the difference in, in, in his movement once he started moving around was, was unbelievable. Same way I, I trained with a guy called Paul de Tours, a, a, a Silat master, and he was the same way. The, 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 um, the, the, the seminar was held in Bob Breen's Academy in London, and because he was a JKD guy, there's different systems that would be more relevant at certain times, and they were going through a big Muay Thai phase. So, and I was doing a lot of Muay Thai at the time, so you had all these young, fit, really sharp guys, lean and really, really fit, and here's this small... Uh, fat Indonesian guy with a little bit of a belly and chain smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and uh, he was throwing people left right and centre with like absolute ease I was going what is going on here maybe these guys are just making them look good so I thought the only way to find out yeah. if this guy's any good is make sure that you're the crash test dummy so I said uh, sir I didn't understand that yeah. can, can you show me that again and I'm, and I'm on the floor and whoa what the hell happened there? And I can guarantee I wasn't being compliant. But uh, he said, look, if we're going to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and do a boxing match, I'm going to lose. He said, it's not all about standing toe-to-toe -to -toe yeah. with a young, fit guy. So, yeah, th these guys know where it's at. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, when you see that, obviously, you know, with, with you know, whether it be Aikido or Jiu-Jitsu or any of these things, when when any kind of martial artist does demonstrations, there's a certain amount of choreography because they're trying to keep the other practitioners safe and, you know, they're a team and they're not trying to hurt each other. So some spectators and some skeptics will look on and say, that's not real and that's rehearsed and that's because, you know, a good example was, do you remember that George Dillman, you know, the, you remember him? He's an American guy and he used to have like the, the yeah, the Dimac touch kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, and then he kind of, I think he was proven to be a fraud, obviously, then, because the great thing about with all these martial arts converging, whether it be into MMA or into the Internet, was that sometimes a guy would walk in and say, I want to challenge your style. And pretty soon, if the instructor couldn't, wasn't up to it, he could be embarrassed in front of his students. And I mean, that happens a bit now with the BJJ, where some big wrestler walks in and wants to you know, challenge the instructor and see what he's made of. And most of the time he lose. But if you have a fake style and something that's not effective and claims to do all these things, you could be on your ass pretty soon if it doesn't work, no? Absolutely. I, I, I hosted a seminar with uh, a CLET uh, instructor, Stephen Benitez, at one stage. And when he came to the seminar, we were chatting after. He says, how many times have you been challenged, Dave? And I was, what? And he says, you know, how many times have you been challenged? And I said, no, never. No one's challenged me. And he says, really? And he couldn't understand this because he'd been challenged countless times in, in his school. And that was in London. <laughs> I said, no, it doesn't happen here. I, said, uh, <laughs> I, just, I was really surprised at it, you know. I suppose the naivety and innocence of Yeah, I think so, yeah. Because even when you watch, obviously, you know, The Way of the Dragon, The Big Boss, all these movies, the whole point is the, the rival schools because they're they want the, the good practitioners to come to them and they want the good students. And if another a club opens, they feel threatened by it and everything. So, yeah, I'm sure in the past it happened an awful lot. And um, whether it happens as much now, I don't know. So, come here, let me, uh, let me talk about, like you were saying there about like MMA in Ireland and 
like you know the evolution of martial arts in Ireland how do you see it how it's going or do you think MMA is taking a lot of students away from all the other styles and that it's kind of top dog in Ireland now oh, I, I would think so um I think that I think they lose the plot a small bit and run away with themselves a little bit and thinking that they're going to completely take over but and that's the case I mean Taekwondo and karate are still huge. They're still massive, and I don't think that's really going to be affected because I think people will always want to train that way. Um, I think there's some phenomenal MMA guys out there, um, both instructors and fighters, uh, and obviously on the uh, like with everything, you have the likes of the McGregor's, which are just you know, as far as I'm personally concerned, are just mm. so bad for all martial arts. Um, but uh, yeah. it, the the evolution i think again it may sound contradictory but because of his influence i think mma is extremely strong in this country um but like with all things things go through phases i mma is always going to be here now um i think there's a lot of bad things about it as well the fact that people that don't have a particular um background can do it so easily and um, you know most martial artists in the early days of, of mma came from a solid background whether they were a judo guy or a boxing guy or and they had a solid base in that my problem with a lot of the newer um mma clubs is is guys don't have that solid background now obviously i'm not saying they should only have one that's not what i'm saying at all but when you're kind of doing a little bit of stand-up a little bit of groundwork a little bit of wrestling you know that's not the same level and the funny thing is a lot of these same mma guys would, would, would give out about uh jkd and say you know they're a jack of all trades and a master of none because they're only touching on certain areas that can certainly apply to them as well because there's not an awful lot of people that have the time to do an in-depth study in 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 martial arts and for, for to be a complete mma guy you're looking at at least three you have to have a solid background in stand-up you have to have a good um brazilian jiu-jitsu or, or some kind of groundwork and unlike when i did mma you need to wrestle back and people say to me you know when we trained uh, i didn't care about the wrestling range because there was no wrestlers in ireland when you were doing the mma when you were training it was it was the the um, the Gracies it was Valadudo wasn't it the the other name yeah yeah and we we didn't worry about wrestling because we weren't too concerned if someone took you down you relied on your Brazilian Jiu Jitsu they they weren't like wrestlers that could hold you down so I suppose it was lucky at that time you just needed stand up in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu nowadays you need you need to be able to wrestle wrestling is a huge component of it. Um, so I think that's a good thing because it, it's introduced something else as well. Um, but there's, there's, there's no shortcuts. Professional MMA is, is a huge other ball game. Um, you know, the skill levels and the, the, the discipline and, and uh, the level of dedication that's needed is massive. Yeah, I think, you know, what it is probably... It, when it when it came around first, and you know you had someone who was maybe a boxer or a wrestler or you know a, a karate guy or kung fu guy, and they had a, a particular strength or a skill set, maybe good with their legs, you know. And the thing was nowadays guys are going into an MMA gym, and 
they're being taught like the basic fundamentals of each style and different styles. But what's happening is that for a lot of these guys, maybe then they have a fight where they're facing a, a really strong grappler or a really strong kicker or puncher. And maybe that's where they're losing out because as you said, it's very hard to combine everything into a class, isn't it? I mean, if I, if I came to you and said, I want to learn how to kick, wrestle, um, grapple, punching, boxing, all in one class, it's, it's a lot to do. And, and you kind of, the great thing about martial arts is if you come from karate or Kung Fu, your legs are pretty good. And then if you come from boxing, your arms and your hands are good. So you just combine those elements together, but it's after years of training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some fighters their own natural ability they can make up for deficits in other areas by having that better skill set but certainly for instruction and that that's that's my fear is is when it comes to people instructing that they need to have solid backgrounds they can't and they have to be honest about where they lack you know um it's it's, it takes a a lifetime to, to do any one martial art let alone minimum of two or three (laughs) <laughs> and that that that's where I fear that the standards could, can drop in terms of of people just kind of wanting to do whatever is the least amount they can do. I mean, there's so much training to have to be done on a physical level as well. Your conditioning needs to be so good. You know, it nearly, it's nearly like full time training. Yeah. Do Do you see as well? Um... If you have a lot of younger people learning like MMA and specifically Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, you know, taking people to the ground, do you see that having an impact on how street fights kind of change? Because, you know, one time the two fellas might stand up and have haymakers, but now you're getting people body slammed to the ground and, you know, so I don't know, is it, it maybe it's more effective in the sense of not getting injured, but maybe more people will get injured because of those kind of fights. It's great. That's a great question, Simon. Um, yeah. Um, one thing that's that's, I think. Uh, no, it's, I don't want to make it sound like I'm blaming MMA, but definitely the influence of what they're seeing. Um, people may have no skills, but they see something, and uh, you know, it, maybe you don't see guys rolling around the floor grappling in a street fight, but certainly one thing that's popped up in videos all over the world is is guys being slammed on the ground. And when you do that on a concrete ground. That, that's devastating like um and that that's a big influence you know uh depending on the context you know it can be a good or a bad thing yeah because the thing is you know in a lot of those cases where you see let's say a martial artist defends himself or kicks someone in the head sometimes it's not the kick in the head that kills them it's when his head hit the pavement you know so the thing is i think if somebody's been body slammed to the ground on a footpath at night 12 or 3 in the morning i mean probably it's not the 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 technique that's killing them it's the head knocking off the ground and you know maybe if two boxers stood up on the streets he might knock him out but maybe his friends will catch him but the problem is when you do like sambo wrestling or bjj and you're pinning or slamming someone to the ground maybe there's more more reasons why someone could get hurt no yeah absolutely um and you know People need to realise that that you know. I often say I've I've students in college, and uh, I keep telling them and remind them that you know, you don't always have to fight. You know, there's times you're just better off not to fight. And like I say to them, you may go out with the best intentions in the world, but you hit someone, they fall, 
they smashed their head open, you could be facing a very serious charge, even though in the start of this thing, you were the person, if you want to say, in the right. So, you know, there's consequences for everything. And, you know, there's other times you may not be, want to act, and that could be to your detriment. You could be the one that ends up in hospital or... You know, the other thing yeah. is people don't have to die for it to be absolutely devastating. You know, you can get paralyzed in a, in a fight over something yeah. stupid. And for some people, that's their life over. Um, you know, if they're a physically active outdoor person and they're a paraplegic after a bad incident, well, you know, to them, that's their life over. So it, it may not be death as such, but in their mind, it's as good as. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Dave, I, I, I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but I just want to ask you, let's say, you know, for you through your life now, um, like how has martial arts changed you spiritually? I mean, how how do you feel? I, I don't want to go into the old cliche of it's made you more disciplined and this kind of stuff. But like spiritually, as you've kind of been training in, in different styles and now obviously you're a teacher and I would say an ambassador for martial arts. And do you feel that spiritually it's changed you a lot? Oh, definitely. Um since I started training Sayap Kohli, that was probably, I like to think I've had all these brainwave or light bulb moments throughout my martial arts life, but definitely um, Sayap Kohli is the one that's been massive, been absolutely huge. Um, a friend of mine, I didn't know what it was. I, I never knew what the movie The Hunt was. A friend of mine said to me, there's a seminar coming up in, 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 in Birmingham uh, in 2000 and Four, 2003 and uh, he said it's inside a call and I was going what's that and he's lost oh, the stuff they did in the movie The Hunters I don't think I've seen that movie mm. so he said look just trust me come along you'll enjoy it and I did and that was probably the most single moment where I was just absolutely blown away that that's the movie with Benicio Del Toro and and um what's his name Tommy Jones and it's some great some great fight scenes yeah and since that it's just been um it's just been a massive monumental journey since i trained in it and it de definitely if something has changed me and definitely changed me far more for the better 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 father better partner better martial artist um it's been sayop kali uh spiritually absolutely it's changed my outlook on on everything every aspect of my life it's it's made me want to be a better everything, better father, better martial artist. Um, it's very difficult to quantify or, or, or to explain how much, but um, definitely I would say I've become more spiritually and a lot of it down to that. Well, tell us a little about it because obviously I've and you know, I've I've seen the 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 silat and stuff before and 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 you know what's really interesting the fact in in the um, the silat and then the escrima but it's funny because in spain here uh they call uh fencing which we call fencing they call it escrima so it's kind of confusing because it's more like fencing where escrima is different isn't it um well, this is where where there's a big huge debate in filipino martial arts uh, it's known under three names uh, escrima ernest or Kali. now that's been an ongoing debate for a large number of years and caused a lot of controversy and things like that. But the most accurate um, 
explanation I have for it is Escrima and Arnis are, are Spanish words and uh, Spain conquered the Philippines so to a lot of native Filipinos they don't accept that as, as the name of their mother art and that's why they refer to it as Kali. Now the, it, the Philippines is a huge place there's thousands of islands half them uninhabited but from north to south there's three different regions uh, between Luzon, Viziers and, and Mindanao. So the, the influences are massive and, and the differences are massive. There's like, the, even the language, the national language isn't necessarily spoken by everyone. So um, th you're going to get a lot of differences of opinion. But um, uh, 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 Kali to me is what what, uh, what the art is called. Yeah. And, and um, so how then when you compare let's say you know um chinese and japanese weapons training you know like let's say japanese with the bow the staff the sai all of these things how did did they come from a similar place the filipino martial arts like were they were they all did they all because you know for years we've they'd say oh you know uh China and Japan obviously were at war and karate and kung fu had elements of the same styles and the you know the 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 empty hand training but did Filipino martial arts come from Japan or China in in any way or was it always its own thing well that's again the history the the, the history of Filipino martial arts is very very hard to be very specific about because it's so huge and some of it is, is dependent on, on oral history, some of it, there's very little uh, written history. And then you can go down the line of a lot of their, their culture was destroyed when the uh, Spaniards invaded the Philippines. Um, people don't realize it, 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 Dan Santos' book is quite good on Filipino martial arts. One of the ways they say they, they, they kept the, um, the, the martial arts and the language alive was the, what looked like tattoos were basically a lot of the time the alphabet uh, what looked like exotic dances okay. were actually the equivalent of, of forms or katas or patterns, whatever you want to call them. Um, so like that where or something? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously when you lose written history, like what's happened in Ireland with a lot of our records, then you're reliant on oral and sometimes that history isn't accurate. So it, it, obviously the Philippines is a melting pot and there's so many cultures in that area, you know, there's, there's, there's a huge Chinese influence, there's Indonesian influences, there's all kind of influences, but um, so it's very, very hard, as far as I'm concerned, for, 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 to be very specific about the history there. Yeah, and but the thing that I would think is that obviously with with more of the, um, you know, the Asian martial arts, especially let's say Chinese and Japanese, is that maybe it doesn't have quite the same fluidity uh, that the Filipino martial arts has. No, I mean, because when you look at obviously some of the stick fighting and the Silat and Kali, it's very fluid and it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of like more akin to how the human body moves. Whereas, you know, we were mentioning there with karate and some styles were more rigid. And when they used to train with the bow or the staff, it would be more rigid movements, you know, and, and linear, not so much as, as like the Filipino ones. Yeah. That, well, that's where we're, people i can't understand why people don't find the history of the system they do uh so interesting because a lot of these like from my years in kung fu depending you know if you came from the wide open plains up near um, mongolia 
it was like massive big movements big sweeping kicks jumping kicks crazy yeah. stuff because they were like wild men or wild countrymen uh whereas when you went yeah. down to, to to the the south of china it was more swampy it was more densely populated things like wing chun couldn't be big because the terrain didn't suit it the, the density of population yes. didn't suit it and you know that applies to, to to many martial arts um thai martial arts came from the battlefield it came directly from Kabong, and just they couldn't practice weapons without getting injured so that's how muay thai eventually came along so you know the, the history of, of of how like any true martial art evolved from the battlefield um the, 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 even, yeah. even as you said yourself was was Japanese martial arts. I remember one person I trained with told me that originally jujitsu was the art, but jujitsu in the old days was a combination of of um, karate, judo, uh, uh, aikido, and the whole thing was encompassed as as jujitsu. But they they didn't want to be teaching something so deadly when feudal times ended to one person, so they separated them. You become yeah. the karate, you become the judo. And that's how they diversified. But the, the, the actual martial art as such would have been jujitsu. That's where Sai and Tanfan Bo combined with the grappling, the striking, the throwing, the locks of, of Akira. All yeah. those would have been the one art originally. But obviously, in some ways, yeah. as, as we evolve and, and become more civilized, things get watered down, you know, which isn't always necessarily a good yeah. thing. No, because, you know, it, it's like I remember, you know, when you'd be learning katas and stuff and doesn't matter if you're learning patterns in Taekwondo or forms in Kung Fu. I mean, the thing is, these katas and forms come from a traditional place and they were basically people practicing moves that they would use on the battleground. And the thing was, if you get a, a practitioner of any martial art that's doing a kata or a form now, their the effect, effectiveness of their moves would be completely different to thousands of years ago of that warrior who did the kata because he was going out onto the battleground and he was utilizing those moves and turning them into things that could save his life or or kill him if he did them wrong you know martial arts originally was it was yeah. a vocation it was a full-time study and people think they do two nights of two one-hour classes a week and they think yeah i'm a i'm a trained martial artist it's you know, it's so watered down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it is. You know, nowadays, the quick path probably for a lot of younger people who want to get into martial arts is kind of do, get, getting into MMA because they feel like, okay, I can learn how to do these things effectively because they're putting me into a situation where I have to fight. Um, but, you know, all those years of drilling punches and kicks and on the makiwara and the punching pads and the bag and everything they're what build up your strength and your speed but so the thing is i think for a lot of younger people when they get to a certain stage in their mma career they probably will think okay maybe i need to go back and learn a bit more brazilian jiu-jitsu maybe i need to learn more striking techniques you know it, it's it's inevitable no i think you made a very valid point there as well just even to mention the makiwara like if you look at nowadays you ask a guy in a karate class, hey, I want you to punch that for five minutes. He's probably going to go, I'm not coming back here again. You know, it's it, it, yeah. like I had a student that trained in Thailand and he asked me some for, for advice when he went over there on what to do. And I said, look, if they say to you, get in the corner and stand on your head, just do it. 
I said a lot of the times they're seeing what your personality is like and Thailand is called the land of smiles for a reason they're lovely friendly people they'll never offend you uh, very very rare for it to happen but you can piss them off and not even realize it and it's important to know a bit about the culture so I said a lot of the time they're going to just check people out and see what they're like so I said to him if he tells you to do something just do it and the guy said he was pushed walking up and down literally just in a stance walk forward 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 walk back 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 and he was doing this for about 40 minutes and he said there was a guy from Kerry that had been in the camp for five months and they'd tell him you know start in the bag and you know when they're ready they'll call you over but he'd be on it for maybe like a minute minute and a half and he'd be looking around going Jesus why am I doing something else and he might pick up a skipping rope but Mike just did exactly as they were told. So the first day was 40 minutes just walking up and down. Now he did fights at the stage, he had over 20 fights, but he just did as he was told. And within two weeks, the the, the Thai instructor that was in the camp uh, was teaching him his own white crew. And this guy from Kerry was going, what the hell's going on there, boy? He says, I'm here for six months, they've never shown me anything like that. But again, he'd just walk yeah. away when he'd be told to do something. Whereas if if they said, 20 minutes on the bag don't come off it Mike would just do it he'd put his head down and he'd work away and you know people don't understand that I've given you the money show me everything you have you know uh, I come across it occasionally people yeah. you know that, that come in they pay their fees and go like show me what you've got and I'm kind of going it doesn't work like that <laughs> I think you know it's it, that's the thing about it is for it's hard for instructors because you get some people come in and they want just okay, teach me everything you know and show me what what can help me and I need this or I want to go into MMA and I want to get a good grounding in kung fu or whatever. And and as you said, it doesn't work like that. You can't, I can't make you into a ninja overnight and so on. And and even even after years of training, we don't specialize in any particular area that's going to make you as effective as you feel you're going to be, because like you said, the, the thing about it is. Nowadays, for martial arts, it's more watered down, and it's not through fault of the instructors. It's through faults of the systems and sports stuff and everything. So, you know, you kind of say you can look at some martial arts and say, yeah, there's two systems. There's the sports system, and then there's like the whole self-defense and true fighting style of that. And I suppose it's a bit like the 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 Krabby Kragong, the 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 traditional Muay is probably a very different system to the Muay Thai sport, no? Yeah, yeah, abs absolutely. Um, and you see, this, this is where people don't realize that without that background and, and where things have come from, you're, you're missing links. You know, everything, it, martial, it's martial for a reason. Like I keep saying to people, you know, why do we have to line up in a certain way? And, you know, a lot of that is just the discipline. It was military, it was martial. Um, a lot of it comes from even like you held lines if you look at the way the Greeks used to fight everyone knows about the phallics and if one guy was out of place that line collapsed so it was important that everyone moves together at the same time all as a single unit so when you're lined up in classes a lot of the reason for that is to adopt the old still military uh, discipline but also that you're moving as a unit um, and a lot of people, a lot of martial arts don't do that. Like I get so many questions about fighting multiple opponents, but yet the guys train in systems where they never train as a group. Um, you know, we train as a group regular in, in South Cali. We, we train as as one guy on his own against two or three. We train 
as two guys fighting four not i don't actually mean sparring i mean moving moving as a unit because each person is is a comp uh, important component of that and if they don't move correctly the whole thing collapses yeah and you know like the discipline is such a huge part of anything whether it be rugby whether it be martial arts i mean we can laugh when we look at the karate kid now with mr miyagi and the wax on wax off but really what he was doing was seeing did the the daniel son have the capacity to to stick at something and to see what the outcome would be if he put a bit of discipline to it that was all it was you know because it was kind of like disguising technique in everyday moves and tasks, sanding and painting. But as you said, it's like if the, the Thai instructors are saying to the students in Thailand, stand in that corner and punch the wall for a minute and, you know, build up your strength or whatever. There's a reason. They're doing it for a reason. And it's it's a thing that's, that's sad. That it, I mean, I've noticed it in rugby. I've noticed it in, in a lot of coaching that that discipline is just gone. I was dreadful as a rugby coach. I, <laughs> I'd say the kids hate me. I said, I don't care. Are you going to do what I say? Not because I'm right, but because that's how we're doing things. If you don't like it, tough look. You know, we obviously the highlight for most kids is the rugby game at the end. Like go through all the drills, that boring crap. Let's get and play. So I'd be the referee and I was dreadful. And like I said to them, above any other sport, especially rugby. So, you know, one of them would say, what was that for? 10 yards. And move the team forward 10 yards. What the hell? Another 10 yards. <laughs> Next minute, if they kept coming, all right, they've scored a try. Now you have to kick off again. They hated me. But I thought, you know, guys, you've no discipline. I said, if you're on that pitch and you back, you mouth back to a referee, you could cost us a game because they could get a penalty try or they could get a penalty 10 yards closer. And... That costs you the game. Says, above anything else, it says, grit your teeth, bite your tongue, and just put up with it. I said, I'm not saying you have to agree with the referee, but you never open your mouth. And, you know, even just in something as disciplined as you'd normally say as rugby, it was amazing to see these kids thinking they could mouth off and complain and bitch and moan. <laughs> and unfortunately, it, 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 it's, it's prevalent throughout society. Yeah, see, probably nowadays what the problem is as well, there's too much choice. So it's kind of like if, you know, years ago when we'd watch RT1 and RT2, if RT1 was bad, you'd go to RT2. And if that was bad, you'd hope the other thing had finished in RT1. So, but nowadays you've 50 million channels. And the problem is maybe for kids learning martial arts, if they feel the instructor is too tough in the judo class, they go to another style. And maybe there's too many things to choose from. And the problem is you don't just knuckle down and say, okay, I'm going to stick at this. And it, I'll, you know, I'll win out in the end, no? And as you alluded to earlier, I'm always in favour of people going and train with other guys, improve the skill sets. But if you're a fighter, if you're training in, in kickboxing, you're doing a bit of Thai boxing with me, you're doing a bit of MMA and you go to a boxing club as well, where does your loyalty lie? You're in four different clubs. That's fine. That's mm. great. If you just want to train, yeah. I 100% approve of that. But if you want to fight and compete, where does your loyalty lie? The boxing coach and the Thai coach get you fight at yeah. the same time. Who, who are you going to give preference to? You know, and for the other guys you train with, I keep saying to people, like, what we do is, is an individual sport, most definitely. But no matter who you are, no matter what fighter you are, there's a whole team behind you, not just your coach. But what people forget is the people you train with help you to get where you are. 
and you know you need them they're the ones yeah. that make you great they're the ones that spar they're the ones that are there for you when you need the sparring and they're the ones that motivate you at times so you know it's very much a team event and that's why loyalty to me is really really important it's, it's probably one of the most important attributes of martial arts because uh, it's not just to the guy that's teaching you it's to the people that you're working with as well because sometimes it's their turn and you need to be there for them as well yeah and and you know i think what it is like that you you know you can try out different clubs and try different styles and everything but then you have to eventually kind of make a decision and say well this is what i'd like to do because the thing is if you're training one night a week in five different styles you're probably going to be pretty okay but it's maybe better to invest three nights in one style and you know what i mean so the more time you can give to one club and one style you'll do better in the end i think yeah So, so Dave, tell me, you know, when for you travel-wise, because obviously with 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 the you know with the Silat and 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 the Cali and everything, you travel a lot more now, and you go to more events and conferences. How is that for you? And and has that been curtailed a lot this year, obviously because of the bans and restrictions? Oh yeah, it, it, it's been dreadful because. Um... We last year straight away we would have had um, it, it's hard to keep up with it all being involved in so many different things but we would have had priority would be our summer camp in the US which gives us access to some phenomenal instructors as well as other um, brothers and sisters that we train which you know you get the chance to train with top level people uh, and then we'd also have a European summer camp that's in Warwick so both of those didn't happen um, Zoom made up for that in a lot of ways. We did have a Zoom uh, uh, summer camp, uh, which was brilliant. And we have a winter camp coming up in two weeks' time. Uh, with Muay Thai, we wouldn't, unless you attend the World Championships, which for me is just, I can't afford that on top of the other two trips. Um, the Congress takes place while the World Championships are going on. But this year there was no World Championships because, uh, because obviously of COVID. So they did have... A conference that was held over zoom so I, I got to be there whereas when i wouldn't normally get to, to, to be at that conference so there's ups and downs to it there's um there's the fact that they didn't take place but there's also the fact that i was able to be part of the zoom calls with, with each of those but um hopefully we, we this year now we just have to see what, what, what lies ahead um but it also brings up a good point when you say that, Simon. There's people that are kind of going, well, you know, I can't train over Zoom. So what does that mean? If this pandemic lasts for another year, does that mean you're just going to sit and wait for it to, to happen? You know, are you, are you going to, you know, training over Zoom isn't ideal, but, you know, it is training. You're getting something done. Uh, it's keeping your interest in what you practice and it's getting you learning stuff and i certainly learned over zoom i learned loads over zoom over the past year but people that kind of go well you know i'll come back to it when it's back to normal yeah my argument against that would be like i said to you earlier when i wanted to get into martial arts but i was i you know didn't have the 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 capacity or where there was clubs or anything i i just started looking at books and it's amazing even looking at pictures of a guy doing a move and you see picture a picture b picture c if you can learn from a book zoom is a lot more beneficial no <laughs> i have one friend that's closed his club completely and is just teaching over zoom now because 
he made a valid point he said out of uh, 10 months last year he trained for four weeks but he had to pay rent for all those months that he couldn't do anything so he just closed the gym and now he just teaches over zoom yeah how just going going on the zoom thing because obviously the instructor can show the moves and you know do the warm and all up and all of that kind of stuff but what happens then so much when you have like the sparring do do you try and put some students together on a zoom or, or is everybody separate um it depends now i'll be very honest my 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 muay thai zoom classes were were very very limited Um, not many people wanted to do it so uh in the end i didn't resume them in december we ran them during the second lockdown and you know those mixed numbers normally very small um you know when people have a preconceived notion of what it's going to be all about you can't show them what you can do over zoom so you know is their opportunity they, they missed out but um it, it like there were people would say that you could have two people renting a house together they'd have been ideally set up they could do pads they could do whatever they want um Sometimes it was a family, yeah. I have a mum and a couple of kids. I have a few mums with, with kids that train with them. So like they could have done a little bit more. Uh, and they did train, funnily enough. But they can do a little bit more. But obviously, contact is just something you, you, you can't do. Yeah. Um, unless there, as I said, there's two yeah. of them in a house together. And even that has to be kind of strictly watched. Not everyone can do that. Vast majority of people are on their own, so... They can't do any kind of contact training but it doesn't mean their learning has to stop they can still learn loads no and and you know i suppose the great thing is now you know with with uh it's like i i don't i've been here seven years and i've never really trained in any martial art but i always kind of do work on the bag and i still go over my techniques and my stuff and and you know if you have a good punch bag you can still get a workout now saying that i need it right now i need to get back in shape but the thing is when you have a bag you can do that and maybe over zoom people can do a good session on the bag with the instructor shouting out the hits and the crosses and so on so we there's still options no oh yeah there's loads of options and there, there's so many resources out there as well um damien trainer from k-star gym in birmingham has has tons of stuff on facebook um he has his own website he has a, a couple of videos and you know he's i think he's one full section on on bag work alone and uh i mean the stuff the guy puts up is, is phenomenal it's really really good yeah and and i think yeah because now you know obviously with the way things are going like if you look at people on the peloton and you know these home exercise bikes and everything and now you have this new apple fitness and everything and you know they probably have only limited stuff like boxing and zumba and yoga but over time you will see more things getting added to them and maybe martial arts instructors will say i'm going to embrace this fitness app and i'm going to try and have my style on it and i'm going to you know teach people at home because the unfortunate thing is we are moving into a very virtual world and like you said that that point you made about the, the the instructors having to pay rent for a whole year and they're only having so many classes a week and maybe they're going why don't i just teach Absolutely. them home we're, we're, we're i'm fortunate we have a great landlord he understands the fact that we don't have training we're not getting charged rent but that's not the case for everybody and some people have found it really difficult funnily enough simon in, in galway uh, there's been quite a few gyms closed and i know that there's definitely one or two i mean i don't mean 
commercial gyms per se, I mean martial arts clubs, and I know that there's definitely one or two that aren't going to reopen, you know, which, which is sad in a, in a lot of ways, but, yeah. you know, and I've read of others, people that were uh, two different gyms that were full-time premises, one 15 years and one 20 years, and they closed, you know, they, they couldn't pay the rent, and the guy said, well, you know, I'll get someone else in if you don't want to pay, even after 15 or 20 years, and they just had no option but to close. So, you know, unfortunately, I think we will see more of that because the the economic downturn with all of this COVID is yet to hit properly. Yeah. So listen, let's um, obviously in a in a perfect world and, you know, if things were back to normal, give us a rundown of what kind of nights you do training and stuff. So for anybody out there who's interested, like you're in you're the gym you have now is in Lisbon, isn't it? That's right. How long have you been in Lisbon? Is that because obviously when I trained with you and for lots of people trained with you over the years, they were in the church in 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 uh, St Patrick's Church, there wasn't it? Or and when did you when did you move out of that? <laughs> That's a it's a funny question, Sam, because I thought we were trying to work out how long we are in Lisbon, and I was kind of under the impression that we're six or seven years. We've been in two different venues in Lisbon, and in total, we're probably uh, 15 years in Lisbon. I would have said seven or eight. So, like, I, I kind of, whoa, where the hell did the time go? We were in the first premises for about um, three or four years, and uh, we just couldn't afford it. It was smaller, way, way smaller than the place we have now, and it was more expensive. That's what was crazy. And it was the back, so it wasn't great. So we moved over to this premises now, and we're there for, for about 15 years. And uh, I can't believe the time has went so fast, but it's our own place, so we can, we can, we were able to do lots with it. And we've, we've chopped and changed it. It's always a work in progress, I suppose. We had a ring, we took out the ring. We had, you know, half a dozen bags, now we've 10 bags. Um, it's fully matted and things like that with dressing rooms and, sh and, and things like that so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing process it, it's going on all the time but the funny thing is when we did make the choice to move um, we were tired of having to share St Pat's St Pat's was great it was so central but like the downside was it, it wasn't clean it was dirty it was being used by lots of other different groups and when we decided to make the move we did and within, I think, within the 18 months of us moving, uh, the building was condemned and it was closed down and it hasn't opened since. It's just sitting there derelict. Yeah, it's a very old building, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, the, the, so, so in Lisbon, where is it in Lisbon? Is it like, is it near, which side of Lisbon is it in, the gym? Yes. Well, we'll say golf style is on, on one corner and uh, there's a laneway on the other side. We're down in that laneway. What you may remember is it used to be the old SDS parcel place, which I'm post had. Oh, okay, I think I do, yeah. yeah. So the only downside to that is those buildings always came with a huge ceiling. So it, it, the problem is it was great for putting in an upstairs. So all the downstairs is a training area. We, we the lads put in uh, Mike Harty and Gary Harty helped me put in uh, a full upstairs with a male and a female change room and an office but uh, the downside to that is it's impossible to eat there's a roller shutter door in it and with the high ceiling no matter what you do the heat's just going to rise so you have lovely warm dressing rooms 
<laughs> downstairs is quite cold. So come here, listen, I'm gonna we're gonna finish up with you. Um, but it's been great chatting with you. And the the one question I want to ask you, you know, for Dave, for for the amount of things you've done and you know the the challenges you've faced and the ambitious, you know, you've been very ambitious with martial arts and wanted to explore every every area of it. And I mean, I think that's brilliant. And you know, it's you've opened up your own mind as well as all your other students' minds to all these things. But what what kind of other ambitions do you have when it comes to martial arts and life in general for yourself? It, that's a really good question. Uh, martial arts, I'm just happy to keep training uh, in Muay Thai and Sayak. Um, Sayak is just ongoing. Uh, I don't see, I don't ever see an ending in sight with Sayak. It's a constant um, evolution of training. Um, the training never stops. It's it's always ongoing. It reminds me of of when we did kung fu. People look at the yin yang symbol and they think it's you know it's a static symbol. What they don't realize is the white is chasing the black and the black is chasing the white. So it, yeah. it's constantly evolving. It's not dead. It's not a flat sign that sits on the table. It, it it's it's moving and that's the way it is with, with, with my sayak training. And I enjoy Muay Thai so much. I just like passing on the knowledge. That I have to people, I love watching people fight. A bit, to be honest, if I was physically capable, I'd love to fight in the morning. Much as pain as you might endure, it's still. It, I think it's something that never leaves. Um, leaves you. You always want to fight. Uh, the hard part, which I found, uh, which some of my students now have found, is is when it when the competing stops. You know where it all goes. You know that that that's that can be hard to live with. Um, not having that 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 com competitive outlook, but I'm fortunate in that I have Sayak and and it's kind of made me think less of, of the sport inside personally for me. Um, in terms of life, I, no massive goals. Uh, uh, just to kind of I suppose priority in my life is my fiance and and my five year old. He's um, he he he's like only starting out in his life, so I want to be there as as a good guide and influence for him. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure you have so much to teach him, and he he has a great, you know, he'll have a great father and a great instructor, and, and no matter about because you know this is the thing, you you as a parent, you pass on all of these things you learn, and obviously if you're a teacher of any sort, whether it's martial arts or languages or anything or music or whatever it is, it's great that you can have that knowledge to pass on to other people. And I think the other thing I'm just looking at all. The wall hangings behind you, Simon, and it's bringing me back to the fact that this pandemic really at home. I have two Harleys, and I just don't get out in them enough. So I'm determined to do a couple of trips. You know, I I I, I miss getting on the bike so much. It, it, that's probably the hardest part. The last two weeks has been up and not being able to get on the bike. Yeah, because you you've been into biking for years and everything, so it must be a bit tricky at the moment, no? because you were you in riverside mc or you're with one of the bike clubs were you in town or no i or i no? was i was in the tribes for a few years and uh i drifted out of bikes for about eight or nine years because once i built a house the money just seemed to be draining everything so the bikes eventually went and uh about uh seven or eight years ago I managed to finally, after all the years of biking, I finally managed to get a Harley. So that was awesome. And I had that for a few years and uh, I decided I needed a bike for the winter. I didn't want to ruin the Harley, 
so I bought a, a BMW F650 because for the bad roads where we live, you know, you'd go for potholes, you wouldn't even feel it. But for a winter yeah. bike, I used to get drenched on it, absolutely soaked. So I thought, nah, I'm getting rid of this. So I just got a big Harley with a screen and boxes, a big bagger, uh, an electric light, and uh, so now I have two of them. So really fortunate with that. And I'm sure, like me, I, I just I uh, just finished watching all of the Ewan McGregor Long Way Up, Long Way Down series. You know, I don't know if you saw the last one, the with the with the electric Harleys, and it was really interesting. You know, I mean, it's a different concept having electric bikes, but I suppose it's the future. But uh, interesting, interesting shows. I mean, the, the fact you know that it shows the harsh side of of biking and especially long distances. No? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, so listen, Dave, thanks very much. I appreciate you coming on. Um, as I said, you know, I want to commend you on all your work. And, you know, I, I've always thought you've been a fabulous instructor. And I think, you know, there's so many people in, in Galway and around Ireland and can attest to, you know, how good of an instructor you are and to the knowledge you've passed on to them. So on their behalf, I'd like to say thank you. And, you know, as I said to you earlier, I think you're an ambassador for Galway. And because sometimes people say to me, why do you want me on your show? Like what, 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 I'm just a martial arts instructor, but the way I try and do this show, I try to have people I feel who are important to society and who have given stuff. It's not about being famous or being a celebrity. It's about what you've given to society. And in, in my eyes, I always look back and I think, you know, geez, Dave Joyce, sound guy, and he's given a lot to Galway and he's, you know, whether it's through your rugby or through your martial arts, but you've influenced a lot of young lives as well and hopefully helped them onto better paths. So I want to say well done on that and commend you. And thanks very much for coming on the show and sharing your story. And, you know, we might have you on again sometime. We can have a more in-depth talk about the world that is martial arts and everything. So it's been really interesting. And I want to say thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure. Simon, thanks a million for the kind words. They're really, really appreciated. And it was great to catch up with you and really enjoyed it. Great. And what we'll do is, um, I, you know, I will, we'll let everybody know uh, when the podcast goes out, it'll be going out on Friday. We'll let them know about your current training and what's happening and whatever, and hopefully what would be happening in the future. And we'll point them towards the club and they can, you know, find out and hopefully you'll get back training the way you want to train soon and everything. But in the meantime, look after yourself. And obviously you and Jerry having COVID, we hope you take care and mind yourself and we will talk to you soon. Okay. Great, Simon. Thank Thanks you, a million. Okay. Take care, Simon. That was Mr. Dave Joyce from Dave Joyce Martial Arts. And I want to thank Dave for coming on the show. It was a very interesting conversation. <clears throat> Brought me back a little as well to when I used to do martial arts. And uh, we thank you, Dave, and keep up the good work. And we hope yourself and your partner, Jerry, get better soon. And, you know, COVID doesn't take too much out of you. Thank you, Dave. Um, so let's talk about next week's guest, who's going to be very interesting. So next week's guest is Katie Grabowski. Katie Grabowski is the Colorado MUFON State Director Investigator. So MUFON, in case you don't know, is the Mutual UFO Network. So Katie is going to talk to us about 
her life and experience so far working with MUFON and she's going to talk to us about her new book called Letters of Love and Light. Letters of Love and Light is over four decades of UFO experiences and you know people talk to her and tell her their experiences in letters and everything so a very interesting book and we're going to talk to Katie and she's going to let us know everything and going to educate us a little about the phenomena of UFOs and all the work that MUFON does so that's going to be a very interesting conversation and we hope you join us and until then take care stay safe and we'll see you soon take care bye bye